These two messages by Michael Pearl, distributed by No Greater Joy Ministries, were delivered in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, January 2013. It's a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ concerning justification by faith alone. It also includes a brief discussion on the book of James regarding how man justifies his claim to faith by his works. At the end of this audio, I'll tell you how to obtain additional free material on this and other related subjects. Did you get your cow's milk this morning? And the chickens fed? Well, my wife reminded us, she got partway down here. She said, I forgot to feed the chickens. So we had to call someone up. They'd gone a day and a half without eating. They probably laid boiled eggs, you know. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. My, my favorite thing to do is to teach the book of Romans. Now, maybe this morning we'll have time, if my voice holds up, that uh, to go through Romans a little bit, take a break, and then go into the book of James. There are two justifications in the Bible, which most people are not aware of that. Justification is when you demonstrate that you are not guilty, that you're not at fault. I'll give you an example. This past November, I won the world championship knife throw and hawk throw. I beat out the Canadians, of course, the Americans and the Canadians and the English and the French and different ones. And I won again uh, last year, 2011, and then I won 2008. Now, there are, uh, there are other people who've won other forms of world championships. So let's suppose I said to you, I was the world championship golden cup knife and hawk thrower. And you came and said, well, I looked at the website and it looks to me like there is a Canadian who's the world champion hawk thrower. And I said, well, uh, no, I'm the world champion hawk thrower. And you said, well, I just don't believe it. The website says he is. And I say to you, well, let me justify my claim for being the world champion. The first thing I'll point out to you is that when you read the website, you missed the fact that that was last year's hawk throw, not this year's. Last year, I won the world championship knife, but not the world championship hawk. This year, I won the knife and the hawk both. So look at the date. So you look at the date. You say you're right there. And I say, one more thing. Let me show you something. So I put a target up and I said, now here's how I throw. And then I say, and here's the trophy. Here's a picture of me with the trophies for this past year. And, uh, and here's two friends that were there and saw me throw. So talk to them. Yes, they say Mike won the world championship knife and Hawk Gold Cup throw this year. And so what I did is I justified my claim to being the world champion knife and hawk thrower. Do you see what see what I did? By my words, I had made a claim. I had said something that there was some doubt about. And so I vindicated my statement. I justified myself in your eyes by the works that I brought forth to prove to you that what I said was in fact true. Now, God didn't have anything to do with that. You know, I won that world championship throw by myself. I tell people, don't pray for me. When I win this championship throw, if I do, I want to be able to brag. And so I don't, 
I don't want God coming in here and helping me do it and getting an uh, advantage over everybody else. And so when I brag about it, I like to be able to, to prove that what I said was true. Now, there's some people who claim that they're Christians. They claim that they are born again and righteous. But you look at their life and you say, well, I don't believe it. I question that. And so at that point, them having made a statement that they are, in fact, children of God, you ask them, justify that claim. And so then they have to bring forth the only thing they can bring forth is works. They can't show you their faith, but they can show you their works. And so you look at their works and you say, okay, I believe then that you, in fact, are a Christian. And so they've justified their self to you. That's really what the book of James teaches. The book of James is not about, it's not about how you get just before God. It's how you justify yourself before men. We'll see that very clearly if we get to it. Now, the book of Romans speaks of a different justification. This speaks of justification before God. That's a totally different justification. It has nothing to do with man. It has nothing to do with proving anything to man. It has nothing to do with my claim that I make with my mouth about being a Christian or being righteous. It's about how God views me. It really doesn't matter how I view myself. It doesn't matter the impression I give you about me. It doesn't matter what the people in my church or religion or denomination think about me or say about me. What matters is what God says. What God says is all that's going to matter because one day you're not going to stand before a group of elders to give an account for the deeds done in your body. You're going to stand before God. And God is not going to look at your relationship to your church or look at all of the little things that you did or your water baptism or your gift of the Holy Ghost with evidence of speaking in tongues. What God's going to look at is his own records that he keeps to tell whether or not you have in fact been justified from all things by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ or whether or not you've just been making a false claim based on your religion. So the justification that we read about in the book of Romans is God justifying the sinner. It's one thing to stand in a courtroom with all the evidence against you and try to convince the jury that you really didn't mean it or that you meant something else and that your intentions were good even though you did the wrong thing. And the evidence that you bring out just will not justify you. And the jury finds you guilty. It's another thing to have the judge know that you're guilty. Know that you are to blame. But the judge himself bring forth witness and declare you to be not guilty. Justifies you from all your works. You say, how can that possibly be? If you're guilty, you're guilty. Well, that's what we're going to look at here in the book of Romans, how God can justify a sinner. Now, we're going to have to move kind of fast through a little bit of it to get to the main part. But in chapter 3 of Romans, he talks about every one of us when he says in verse 9, Are we better than they? He just talked about how some sinners were pretty bad. Talked about some homosexuals over in chapter 1. 
talked about some murderers and liars and thieves and whoremongers and adulterers. And he said, are we better than they? He said, no and no wise, for we both foreproved, both Jew and Gentile, that they're all under sin. Both Jew and Gentile. Now that includes the English and the Amish. That includes the Methodist and the Baptist. That includes the Mennonite and the Church of Christ and the Roman Catholic. We before proved that all are under sin. He said, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. That's very emphatic, not one. There's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. In the community where I live, the Amish will come together and say, we need to come together and come to an understanding. And that means about six weeks of talking two or three times a week to come to an understanding on something, some agreement. But there's one thing you and I really don't understand, regardless of our religion. We really don't understand the things of God. We understand the things of man, but not the things of God. They are all gone out of the way. What way? That's God's way. They are together become unprofitable. If you have a ballpoint pen that runs out of ink, it's unprofitable. You can scratch your ear with it, but you can't do anything else. It won't write. It's unprofitable. You throw it away. You don't know anyone that keeps ballpoint pens that run out of ink, do you? And then he says, they're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No not one. That's very emphatic. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they've used deceit. Might not have told outright lies. But with their tongues they deceived. The poison of asp, that's a snake, is under their lips. They have those bags of poison there. And their words strike with poisonous venom. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Sometimes people don't curse, but they have some Baptist bitterness, just religious bitterness. Husband toward wife, wife toward husband, destruction and misery are in their ways. Has your life had any destruction or misery in it? If not, in time it will come. Destruction and misery, the way of peace they've not known. I've asked people, do you have peace in your heart with God? And they say, I'm trying to, and that's not enough. The way of peace, they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, if you really believed in a heaven and a hell, let's put it this way, if you believed there was a heaven and a hell, and you didn't know for certain that you were born again, child of God, on your way to heaven, you wouldn't get up and get behind a horse, get on a tractor, or get in a vehicle and drive down a road. You wouldn't put food in your mouth for fear it would be poisonous and kill you. You wouldn't go to sleep for fear something would happen to you during the night. You wouldn't walk out the door except you walked real careful down all three steps to make sure you didn't stumble and break your neck. If you didn't know for sure you were born again child of God and you believe there's a heaven and a hell and a day of judgment, that would be the scariest thing in all the world to know that you were just one heartbeat away. One breath away from eternity. When I was, what, about 58 years old, I, uh, I thought I was in 
fine shape and all of a sudden one evening taking, getting ready for bed, I just felt real faint and, and within a matter of a few seconds, I was down on my back on the floor and I said to my wife, it's my heart, it's clear what it was. And I said, I'm gone. <laughs> and I lay back. Sure, I had died. And uh, she uh, got me, uh, kind of came back around a little bit, got me in the vehicle and got me down to the uh, hospital. And they uh, put a stent in there. They said, you were 95 to 98 percent blocked in your major, major artery. It's a widow maker. I was just a matter of one heartbeat away from eternity. And. Now, I knew God, so I wasn't afraid. I wasn't, wasn't a bit concerned. I knew I was going on. My only concern was I was leaving her alone, maybe to have to marry again. And I just didn't want to get into heaven and share her or anything. So I, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't want to go and leave her like that. No fear of God before their eyes. Listen, if you really believe that there's a heaven and a hell, then the fear of God would drive you into the barn somewhere in a stall where a horse couldn't get to you to stay on your knees and pray until you knew you were born again. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. You know, religion is full of mouth. Religion is full of mouth, full of talking. Full of talking back and forth. Full of justifying and accusing and blaming and working things out. And trying to keep everybody controlled and organized and going like they ought to go. And God said in the judgment day, every mouth will be stopped. That means that you won't try to explain anything. You won't try to excuse. You won't try to justify yourself. You know that you've come up against a wall. And it's just you naked before God, and he knows everything. You know, when you use a cell phone, there's someone somewhere in the government listening to you. I know that because down in the hills there where we live, several weeks ago, one of those old hillbillies bought him a new deer rifle. And not a Christian, but he bought him a new deer rifle. Lives way back without a telephone, without electricity, without a mailbox. Back in the hills, one of those survivalists, scared of everything, you know. Didn't want the government to know anything about him. But he got on his cell phone, he called a friend. He said, with this rifle, you could assassinate Obama at a thousand yards. Five hours later, a whole long line of black SUVs pulled into this remote area and people jumped out in SWAT outfits with guns looking for him. They knew exactly what he'd said. There's a computer reading all of that, keeping that information. At the last knife throw, I was throwing beside a guy. I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm an engineer for Google. And I said, you know all about us. He turned around and looked at me right in the eye, and he said, I know everything about you. I said, uh, I guess you've got records on. He said, i got record on everything you've ever done online on a computer. Listen to, watch that, whatever. I said, you have permission to publish mine. But he really felt the sense of power because that's a big company with thousands of employees and that information is there in the computer banks. They know everything and it doesn't go away. With the storage devices today, it will never go away. 
In judgment day, God could call Google in and say, tell me about him. And know all about you. Now listen, if, if Google knows about you, don't you know God does? The Bible said in that day the books will be opened. Books, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, three thousand nine hundred and twenty-nine, three thousand nine hundred and thirty books will be opened. Fourteen thousand, one hundred thousand books will be opened. And the dead will be judged out of those things which are written in the books. Another book will be opened, which is the book of life. And the dead will be judged out of those things which are written in the books. These are things written in the books about you. It said you'll give account for every deed done in the body, whether it be good or whether it be bad. It said every mouth will be stopped and every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Some people will bow and it won't do them any good. They'll confess, but it won't matter. But everyone will have that final confession that Jesus was Lord. And each and everything you and I have done will be brought out and the whole universe will hear of it. It will no longer be a secret. The Bible said all secret things will be brought into the judgment with every secret thing. So the most secret of all your secrets, the darkest, most well-covered, shadowy thing that you'd like to forget is well-written. Things that your poor, feeble human memory have made dim are very brightly written in God's book and will be made manifest in the day of judgment. At that point, you will give account. That means you will have to answer for those things. God will say to you, why did you do that? And there will be angelic testimony. There will be testimony. And you will have to vindicate yourself. There will be no vindication. Every mouth then will be stopped. And all the world will be declared guilty before God. God will point his finger at you and say, guilty, guilty, guilty. Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. There'll be many in that day who'll say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Cast out devils in thy name? Done many wonderful works? And I will say unto them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The Bible said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, but narrow and straight is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Enter in at the straight gate, a narrowed, constricted gate, he said. There are many, many people traveling the broad road. Many religious Baptists, Methodists, Church of Christ, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Amish and Mennonite, traveling the broad road, ignorant of the fact that the day of judgment awaits them. And they have no hope. Their religion will not matter. They'll not stand beside their elders. They'll not stand beside mama or daddy. Not stand beside your history. Martyr's mirror will not matter in that day. Your Baptist Sunday school quarterly will not matter in that day. Fox's book of martyrs will be meaningless. The fact that you never lifted a hand in violence will not matter. The question is, what has been in your heart? Has there been hatred there? Has there been bitterness there? Has there been anger and resentment and pride and greed? Has there been lust in your body? 
those things will all be brought into the judgment, every secret thing. So he concludes this point in verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If there were a volcano, hot lava melting, coming down, and we were fleeing from it, and we came to a rocky point that plunged off into the abyss below, and the, the lava had filled the, the void below, so that we stood on a rocky point, can't go back into the lava, we go down, we go into the lava, can't go left or right, only one way to go, across to the rocky point on the other side. There we will escape impending doom. And it's just 39 feet to the other side. Here we stand on this timberless point, a whole group of us, and one guy in a wheelchair. And we say to him, wheelchairs first. And so he gets a running start and flies out there four, five, six feet and then plunges into the fire below. The next guy is an old man, old man next. And he gets out and he runs. I could probably jump eight or nine feet and down I'd go. And then here comes a young fellow. He said, boy, I'm a good jumper. So he runs and he jumps. And sure enough, he sails out there 18, 19, 20 feet and down he goes. And then finally, we have a world champion broad jumper. And he gets a running start and he sets a new world record. 28, 29, 31 feet and down he goes. But as he goes down, he says, I got closer than anybody. You know what happened to all of them, what they had in common? They all fell short. They all fell short. Now, it's not a matter of, are you better than your neighbor? It's not a matter, are you better than you used to be? It's a question, have you fallen short of the glory of God? None of us have risen to that level. None of us can make that leap from sinful humanity to righteousness that pleases God. None of us. Religion won't help you. It just paints the outside of the sepulchre and makes it whitewashed. So it indeed appears beautiful on the outside, but within is, within is full of dead men's bones and raving wickedness and every un, impure and unclean thing. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now jumping over to 623. He says, for the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Is there a way out of this? Is there a way to escape this? Verse 21 of chapter 3 in Romans gives us the beginning of the answer. If God doesn't provide the solution, you and I can't do it. If God's solution, hear me now, is to give us some laws to obey, it'll never get done. Because I can't obey all those laws. Try as I may. If God's solution is to require me to have a heart that is pleasing to him, to, to be broken in my spirit, 
to become meek, to become humble, to get in a condition of heart and mind to where God looks and says, okay, I like you now. You're no good, but I like I like the fact that you know you're no good. I, I, you're not worth anything, but I like the fact that you know you're not worth anything. And so now that you're in this broken, humble, contrite state, I'm going to call you my own. If that's the way it works, listen, none of us would ever qualify. Because in our best state, the Bible says, we're all together vanity. Vanity is that little soap bubble the kids blow that drifts in the wind and is so beautiful on the outside. But the moment you touch it, it's gone. Our best works are like that. We worked to create an image and one touch and it's gone. So he gives us the answer. Verse 21, 321. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. This righteousness is unto all and upon all that believe. For there's no difference. Just as there's no difference in us being sinners, there's no difference in the fact that God provides a righteousness that's unto all and upon all that believe. You say, but it couldn't be that simple. You'll have to argue that with God in judgment one day. When he opens this book as well and said, that's what I said. And you say, but God, it couldn't be that simple. And he said, that's exactly what I said in the book. You should have believed it. But I thought you should have believed what I said. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all. Now, let me explain to you what the righteousness of God is. Now, you know what the righteousness of man is. And there are men who do the right thing sometimes. All of us do the right thing occasionally. Here is my righteousness. I'm adorned in my righteousness. It's supposed to be pure and white. But I have fogged up my righteousness with sin. My righteousness is now tainted and impure. But it's, my, it's the total accumulation of all the good I've done in my life. That's my righteousness. So I wear this. Now, would I dare come before the throne of God and say, God, I come to show you my righteousness. That would be a foolish thing indeed. Now, if I had a white sheet, I don't happen to see one around. We keep a lot of garbage in the corner at our church where we can make different illustrations out of it. We've got all kinds of stuff piled up there and I can always come up with something. So if I had a white sheet, I would put that on and I would hold it up here and I would lay it across this little stand. And I'd say, now this perfectly white sheet is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's without sin, without blemish, without spot. It's sinless. So this is Mike's righteousness. This is Christ's righteousness. They're not the same. And Christ's righteousness will never be my personal righteousness. And it will never clean up this old self who I am. Who I am 
in judgment day will still be a dirty, filthy so-and-so. If I get into heaven, I'll never get in on this. As God helps me, this thing will never be cleaned up enough to please God. With God's grace and power and spirit and mercy and all the religion in the world, this thing will still be filthy in the day of judgment. There'll still be pride. There'll still be greed. There'll still be selfishness. There'll still be laziness. There'll still be all kinds of personal sins of the flesh and spirit indwelling Mike Pearl in his last days. Now, there's no outward sin. I don't commit adultery, lie, cheat, steal, or murder, or do any of those big things that you'd call sin. You won't see me sinning. But I know my heart. I know what I'm made of. That's my righteousness. He said there's another righteousness that's not by the law. It's a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think it is, says, For God hath made him to be sin for us, him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made him to be sin for us, him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, starting in chapter 4, what shall we say then, as Abraham our father has found as pertaining to the flesh? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scriptures, quote, book of Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So he said, what did Abraham our father find out? Abraham our father found out. That through works a man cannot be justified, but by faith he can. Now, how was Abraham justified by faith? If we go back to Genesis chapter 13, 14, 15, we read about Abraham. We find that it was a very simple matter. Here was Abraham, an old man, 75 years old. And his wife had never had a child. She was barren. She'd always been barren. And so God spoke to him, said, Abraham, I want you to leave and go to a country, a place I'll show you. And so Abraham got up, not knowing where he was going to go and followed God. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to multiply your seed between you and Sarah as the sand on the seashore innumerable. Now, Sarah had always been barren. When God told Abraham, I'm going to give a, a child through Sarah. Abraham could still produce seed. Sarah couldn't. And so for 25 years, God worked with Abraham. And after 25 years, when he was 99 years old, Abraham had ceased to have pleasure with his wife. He, as an old man, he'd ceased to have seed. He'd ceased to be able to produce a child. So not only was Sarah barren, Abraham was now worn out and ceased. So here was this old couple living together with no obvious hope of ever producing a child. It would now take a double miracle for them to have a child. And the day came when God moved on Abraham and Sarah. He said, one year from now, you will have your child. And 
So Sarah found something unusual happening to her. She found herself ovulating again. And she found herself with desire. And Abraham found himself with desire. And one day it happened. They came together. And a miracle took place. And Isaac was conceived. And one year later, from the day the angel spoke to Abraham, the child was born. God said to Abraham, Abraham, because you believed me, I'm calling you righteous. God called Abraham something he wasn't. It says, God who calleth those things which be not as though they were. God called Abraham something he's not. He called him righteous. So in God's sight, God no longer viewed Abraham in his robe of unbelief and his robe of sin. God now viewed Abraham as dressed in the robe of Jesus Christ in a robe of righteousness. Abraham had traded in his personal life of sin and disobedience for that wonderful white robe of righteousness that belonged to Jesus Christ, God alone. So Abraham had now had a righteousness counted to him by faith. The word counted, imputed, reckoned is the same word from the Greek word legosomai. I don't know what your German Bible has, but it it probably has something uh, similar to that. I'm sure it would have. Something that indicates declaring something to be, making it a reality. So when you, if you were overcharged at the bank, and I were to go down to the bank and in my, and uh, your name, I put a thousand dollars in your account, and I came back and I said to you, here you are, you're about to be kicked out, you can't pay your rent, and I said to you, you can go ahead and write a check for that rent. You now have a thousand dollars in your account. And you would say to me, well, (laughs) I don't want to go to jail for writing bad checks. I said, no, I have put it in your account. So get your checkbook out where you got a deficit right there. Write in $1,000, account $1,000. You count it to yourself. Number it. That's another one of the words that's translated in English. Number it 1,000. So you count it, you number it 1,000, you reckon it to be true. That's one of the words translated from what goes by. And because I have imputed to your account $1,000. I did the imputing, you do the reckoning and the counting. So God has imputed righteousness to Abraham by faith. And Abraham has counted it to be true. Abraham has reckoned it to be true. Abraham has numbered it to be true. And so now Abraham continues to believe God that he is in fact righteous. Let's keep reading. 4 or 5. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Did you hear that? God imputes righteousness without the man working. Without works of righteousness, God imputes righteousness. This is not God making us righteous. It's God calling us righteous. It's not God transforming us so we act righteous. It's God calling us righteous before we start acting that way. Me doing something righteous occurs after 
I'm imputed to be righteous. My walk of obedience doesn't add one thing to that imputed righteousness. That imputed righteousness is 100% complete and full. I used to preach on the street a lot. I still preach in the prisons every Saturday. And I have been out on the street preaching and had a hippie girl full of drugs and alcohol, immoral and godless, walk up. Now, what could you do in your religion with that girl? Or I've had lesbian come into a meeting, sit down in front of me on the front row. What could you do for that lesbian? I've had murderers sit in front of me to hear what I've got to say. I've been on the street preaching and had people knife fighting all around, come up and threaten to hit me, throw things at me. Had people get knocked out standing right beside me, flat out on the ground. And I've preached to these sinners on that street. What could your gospel that you believe do for these people? I'll tell you what mine does. I've seen those people in 20 minutes or 30 minutes of hearing the message of imputed righteousness. I've seen them believe it, be born again, the Holy Spirit come down into their life. And from that point on, the rest of their life, they walk in holiness and purity and righteousness and thanksgiving to God. I've seen it thousands of times. Now, that is the miracle of the new birth. If you haven't experienced that, if all you've done is labored neck deep in the thick molasses of religion, struggling to make something happen, then you've missed the reality and the miracle of the righteousness that's by faith without the works of the law. I could take you right now and introduce you to that one-time lesbian who 25 years ago trusted in Jesus Christ in one little short meeting of 20 minutes sitting right in front of me. I could show you the dope head that sat beside her that believed the gospel too and was born again. And later on, those two came together and married. I could take you and show you murderers right now in my church at home preaching is a murderer <laughs> that's right right now this he's he's just getting ready to get up right now murderer a gang member street guy gets up and preaches and it's like turning loose a stallion you know in a small pen he just goes crazy for nine years he sat and listened to me preach the gospel in the prison he was born again. He became a man of God, and today he's a holy man. He's been out nine or ten years now. He worked for us for a good portion of that time in the ministry. And he preaches all over the place. How does that happen? Let me tell you about another one. We had a ministry on the side of the road. We invited military guys in. We're open every night of the week. Four of us went together, rented the building, financed it, kept it going for 11 years as long as it was needed. And across the street was the Long Branch Saloon. Next door was a nightclub. On this side was a liquor store. And across the street, that Long Branch Saloon was Phil Holland, big pot-gutted fella. He ran the drugs, the women, the booze, the gambling in town. Military town, 40,000 servicemen. He had a plenty of fodder for his satanic gristmill. 
And so we would walk across the street to stand on his side of the sidewalk, which is where most of the guys walked, to invite the fellows over to our side of the road to get saved. I remember one night when Ricky Owens came stumbling out of the bar, 27 years old, drunk as could be. We invited him in, he sat down, and he was born again. Phil Holland came out and said, get off my sidewalk, the proprietor of the Long Branch Saloon. I said, this is public property. He called the law. The law came down and said, you can't stand here. You're interfering. I said, yes, we can. I showed them the law. I kept a copy of it. They said, well, you need to move on down the street. I said, no, sir, we won't. We'll stand right here. And we did. And they left us alone. Phil Holland's bands would be unloading and we'd walk out and we'd stand and talk to the bands and tell them about Jesus. We'd tell Phil about Jesus. Phil would come out and cuss us. Come out and swear at us. Condemn us to hell. Denounce God. Ridicule the Bible. And we'd tell him about Jesus one more time. Tell him, Phil, if you just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Now most people say, well, it's not that simple. Phil didn't think it was that simple either. And after we'd been there about two and a half or three years and been cussed a number of times and had the law called and threatened and what all, one Sunday morning there was about 45 or 50 of us gathered there for prayer and praise inside that little building. The front door opens and in walks Phil Holland. He'd never been in that building before with us. He pushed that big pot gut in, had to step over people. The place was really crowded, full of kids too. He walks to the middle of the floor. We didn't know if he had bombs and fixed to blow us all up or what, you know. He walks to the middle of the floor and he says, I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Well, we hooped and hollered and shouted and laughed and cried and took him down to the lake and baptized him right there. Just, just load him up and took him down. He'd gotten born again the night before at home. He believed the gospel we'd been preaching. And you know, I didn't, I didn't think he was ever listening. I didn't think he was hearing any of it. But he believed it. You say, well, how do you know he got saved? Well, he got out of that Long Branch Saloon immediately. And he went into poverty living in an uninsulated house. Didn't know how to do anything for a living. He was about 35 years old. Didn't know how to do anything for a living. And lived in poverty, cold. My wife went out to help deliver his wife's babies. And I taught him how to route signs with a, make signs with a router in Cedarwood. And he went down to a little theme park there and got a job doing that. Eventually got into selling some leather and eventually got into his distribution of leather to different shops and got on his feet. And Phil Holland is a man who loves God today. Some, what does it be, 40 years, 35 years later. He's the man who loves God, who walks in righteousness, walks in truth and has since the day he was born again. By the power of Jesus Christ. What would your gospel do for Phil Holland? Give him a place to live? Different hat to wear? Some different clothes? He had a big old beard. He didn't need that. What would your religion do for him? Would it born him again and put new life into him? Or would you be preaching to him about his works and what he needs to do? And try to help him struggle along and get to a certain level of works. To where you could believe he was a Christian. The gospel that Paul preached. The gospel that I preach. The gospel that the disciples in the early church believed. Could be preached on the day of Pentecost. 
in many different languages to many different people and 3,000 of them could be saved that day and baptized that day and counted as born again that day and they didn't need to be scrutinized for weeks or months or years before they get into the church. You have missed the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are believing a man-made system that's actually a door to keep you away from God rather than a door into God. Amen. <laughs> Salvation is so easy and yet so hard. Jesus said that the little children could be saved. Suffer the little children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of God. And yet we've got these old, tired, sophisticated adults still struggling and hoping. Why? Because they're not believing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're believing in their own righteousness. Here's the way it came about. When Jesus lived his perfect life, let's get the white robe again. When Jesus lived his perfect life at 33 and a half years, he was dressed in human perfection. I'm not talking about God's holiness. Now I'm talking about the holiness God achieved in the body of Jesus Christ walking in human flesh. In other words, Jesus kept the law. Jesus lived perfect life like a man ought to live. At the end of Jesus' life, he qualified to ascend up into heaven and sit down on the right hand of God as a man. He was the first man who ever earned his way to heaven. He got there by works as a man. And so this man could sit down on the right hand of God and fellowship with God. This man, Christ Jesus. But instead of doing that, this man, Christ Jesus, went down into a garden and he knelt down. And he said, Father... If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And God said, son, drink the cup. And in that cup was my sin. In that cup was the wrath of God. In that cup was your sin. And Jesus took the cup of sin and wrath and he drank it. And when he stood up, he was counted as if he were a sinner. When he stood up, he was bearing your sin. So immediately they came into the garden and they treated him like a sinner. They struck him, they abused him, they carried him away. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they nailed him to a cross. And so much so that when he looked up to the father, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God was forsaking the sin that covered Jesus. God was forsaking all of humanity in their sinfulness. And when Jesus' blood ran out, it was innocent blood that ran out to pay for our sin. And when Jesus descended into the grave with our sin, there in the grave, that sin was paid for, punished forever. When he came up out of the grave, he came up as a sinless man and eternal God in a body without sin. 
when he was seated on the right hand of God after his ascension. It was man seated. It was God seated. And that righteousness now is a gift. He just gives it to anyone who believes on Jesus Christ. Anyone who accepts by faith the Lord Jesus Christ has that righteousness accounted to them. Their sin and iniquity will I remember no more. I will cast their sin behind my back. As far as the east is from the west, I remember it no more. Are you still carrying your sin around, doctoring on it, putting splints on it, treating it, trying to overcome it? Or have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and let it be taken away forever? It's so simple. So beautifully simple. You know, I remember one night I was uh, supposed to preach in a Baptist church down in Nesbitt, Mississippi. And uh, so I went down there and my brother and I, and we set up some music equipment, sang and preached and Four or five grown men, old men, got saved. And then the second night we went back, and there were some folks crying, and I mean, you know, it was, God was moving. And the second night I went back and got there about an hour and a half early and started sitting up. There was an old man sitting in the back when I got there an hour and a half early that I walked up to and talked to. He came unsaved. He'd been there the night before. He came that night to get, get a head start on everybody. That old man wanted to get saved that night. And the preacher called me and said, come in, I want to talk to you. Called me back in his office. He said, pack your stuff up and get out. This, I was scheduled for a week's meetings. The preacher said, you can't stay here. I looked around there, stood all the deacons with their arms crossed. And he looked at me, the preacher did, and said, I've got a building program. I can't afford for anything to happen now. Pack up and get out. I took my shoes off. I beat the dust off of them. Got in my vehicle and left. Went down to Court Square in Memphis. Real busy downtown area, smoggy, smoky, a bunch of centers and drunks and servicemen hanging around. And sometimes you couldn't tell the drunks from the servicemen. And I walked up to a man and a woman, a young, young fellow, service guy and a girl, a little, little glass encased podium there and had a Bible open but to the book of Psalms under that glass. And I walked up and I said, do you understand what you're reading? You know, I got that from Philip, right? Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, uh, no. And I leaned over and I looked at it and I said, well, and I started preaching Jesus to him right there out of that psalm. I don't remember what psalm it was, but I started telling about the Lord Jesus Christ dying for him and taking away his sins. Within 15 minutes, that guy was weeping and invited Jesus into his life and was born again. He went off to Vietnam. A righteous man. A man of God. Just last night, right here in this auditorium, there was a young lady came up with her young children. Said, do you remember me? Well, I didn't. Deb kind of remembered him. But back when we were there working with the military, there was a military guy saved. Born again. In a message like that. And Deb's friend who lived there was born again. At our wedding, I preached the gospel at our wedding. I took an opportunity to preach to everybody because 
friends and relatives came that never hear me preach otherwise. And I also baptized her at the wedding for her. You know, it was about two and a half hours before we got around to getting married. And, and her best friend and that guy, that military guy, got married. And they had several children, and now their children have children. And I asked them, her daddy and mother have walked in the faith, obedient to God all these years. Their children are walking in the faith, obedient to God. And now their grandkids coming along are being brought into the faith, obedient to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves, and it saves forever. And it's the only thing that works, and works for sure. Now, I will stop there. I don't do the invitation type thing, you know. If you hadn't gotten saved, as I spoke, by believing, you won't get saved now by praying a prayer. I mean, all I could do now is preach the same thing over again to you. I won't do that. But I am going to come back in a moment and go through the book of James. It won't be near as long. It'll be 20 minutes or something Go through the book of James with you because I know what some of you are doing right now. The devil's whispering in your ear. He's going to say, but faith without works is dead, being alone. You've got to have works. Can faith save him? No. So we see a man is justified by his works, not by faith alone. I hear you. So we're going we're to jerk that right off under you with the word of God. So we'll come back, uh, give him a little break. Preacher, how long? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something? Give you a chance to go to the restroom, stick something in that kid's mouth, and then we'll come back. All right. All right. Before we actually get in the text of James, I'm going to give you a little uh, method to do Bible study. The way I study the Bible is I want to know what each word in the text means. We often, we always, you know, I have people that I've taught for years and they still will come across a word like justified or saved or sanctified or uh, any number of baptized church, any number of words and assume that it means in the Bible what it means in everyday language to them. And that's not the case in most times. For instance, the word repent doesn't mean what you think it means. In general usage, it has a different meaning in the Bible. Now you say, how do you determine that? You don't do it with Greek or Hebrew helps. You do it by taking every single time that word justified is used in the Bible, in your English King James Bible. You look it up and you read it. Now I have a computer now that, of course, makes that work real fast. But... My wife can tell you in times past, before I had a computer, when I actually formulate all my beliefs, I did it without a computer. I did it with an old hardback, green, Strong's Concordance and a notebook. And sometimes I would go out and buy these $1 paperback Bibles. I'd take a pair of scissors and I'd cut the verses out of them, lay them out on the kitchen table until I had several hundred verses on there. You'd have to have one for the front side and one Bible for the back side of the page, obviously. And then I would shuffle those things around, organize them. Then I'd start gluing them into a binder. And that's called cut and paste. (laughs) The reason for that. And then I would go back and start cutting my binder up and pasting it again, you know. 
And I would do that for several weeks on one word, one study. For instance, one time I came across a Pentecostal holiness who said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So they told me that that meant that if I repented and was baptized in Jesus' name, that then I would be saved and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that if I hadn't been baptized in Jesus' name, then I wouldn't be saved. So that verse was what they used to support that. Well, when I looked at the verse again, I realized that the entire meaning of the verse hung on the one word for, F-O-R. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Their interpretation was repent and be baptized in order to produce the remission of sins. That's the way they're reading for, in order to cause it to happen. And I was reading for differently, repent and be baptized because your sins are remitted. So it's a question as to which one of us was right. So I had to look at every single time the word for appears in the Bible. I, it's been so long, I don't remember, but it was like into the thousands, <laughs> a lot of times. And I read every single one of them, every single one of them. And here's the way I did it. When I read them, I looked for, for a verse that I could place, replace the word for with the synonym in order to cause to happen. Repent and be baptized in order to cause it to happen. And after thousands of verses, I found... Only two in the whole Bible, this one and one other, that you could possibly construe it to mean in order to make it happen. In the vast majority of cases, the word for meant in reference to it having occurred. For instance, in the book of Romans, it says that Christ came for sin. Christ came for sin. Did he come in order to produce sin, to make sin to happen, or did he come because of sin? He came because of sin. And so when he says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, he's actually saying repent and be baptized in reference to the fact that what Christ did remitted your sins. Repent and be baptized because your sins are remitted in Christ. So it was not a cause and effect thing. It was simply referring us to the basis of our salvation, which was Christ. And so baptism should follow in our response to that that Christ did. And so I've given you all this just to give you a chance to sit down. <laughs> all right, here we are in the book of James. And uh, I'm going to look at several verses, first of all, where the word justified is used, just to show you in Luke chapter 7... Verse 29, Luke seven twenty nine. I'm reading. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. So did you know that in the Bible, there's a number of times, many times that God is justified. There are times that man justifies God. So the word justified, therefore, cannot be limited to just getting saved or being born again. In other words, it's much broader. It's not a synonym for being born again. Now let's look at another one. Let's look in Luke 10, 29. Just turn one page over 
two pages over. Luke 10, 29, and we read, He willing to justify himself. So that was a sinner trying to justify himself with his words. Matthew eleven nineteen, And the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publican sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. What he's saying is that wisdom vindicates itself by the fruit that it bears. That wisdom proves its virtue by the fruit that ultimately issues from it. Now, we won't read any more for the sake of time, but there's a number of them like that that you can look up. Just look up the word justified, and you will see that it, in the majority of cases, it does not refer to being born again or to the new birth. Standing alone, the word justified is not a religious word. It has no religious content. It simply is a word that speaks of vindication of something or someone. And so when the Bible speaks of Abraham was justified before God, it's making it clear that his justification was before God in regard to himself. Okay, the book of James speaks of justification. and It has its own meaning, which we have to derive from the book of James itself. Okay, James chapter 2, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? The key word here is the word say. It appears several times. It's about a man saying he has faith, a man making a profession of having faith. He said, what if a man says he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Now, in what regard does he mean can faith save him? We keep reading. He gives an example. If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, he give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? In other words, when a man is cold and he's hungry, and he comes to you and he says, uh, boy, I'm really cold. I'm really hungry. And you say, OK, now go away and be filled. Now go away and uh, be warm. But you don't give him anything to make him warm. You don't give him any food. Then your words are empty and they don't have any meaning. If you really want a blessing on him of being fed and warmed, then you do something, you don't just say something. So he's pointing out that for a Christian, that we should go further than just speaking blessings on people. We should actually do them because faith won't save the cold man. Faith won't feed the cold man. It takes some action. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. So he said a faith that doesn't result in works is a dead faith. Now, what he didn't say was that faith is activated by works. He didn't say that. He didn't say that faith and works together save someone. What he says is that faith will result in works. If works don't follow faith, then the faith itself is a dead faith. And that's absolutely true in any situation, in any case. See, a living faith, a real faith, a true faith, an honest faith is a faith that acts upon what you believe. If you don't act upon what you believe, it's clear that you don't believe. 
The acting doesn't make the faith. But the acting justifies the claim to faith. If you say to a man, I want you to be blessed, but you don't do anything to bless him, then he says, he didn't care anything about me. He, he didn't care anything about me. If he'd cared, he'd have given me a place to sleep that was warm. He'd given me something to eat. Even so, faith in that works is dead. Verse 18, yeah, a man may say, there it is again, the word say. Notice that. A man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Then he says, show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. The issue is faith, not works. But works is what vindicates the claim to faith, and that remains true. In other words, if a man says to me, out on the street, I go out on the street to preach. A man walks up to me, he's got a cigarette in his hand. And he's got a whore on his arm. And he's got beer on his breath. And he says to me, yeah, I'm a Christian. I don't think he is. I know he's not. He's making a profession of something, but I don't see the works there. So no, I don't believe that he has faith. I think he's saying something that's false. No problem with that. I think that anytime a person makes a claim to be a Christian, that I expect to see the fruits of a Christian. If you take me out into your yard and you say, I'm going to show you my pear tree. I look at it. It's got these little bitty crab apples on it. And I said, that's not a pear tree. You don't know much about trees, do you? That's a crab apple tree. You say, no, that, that's a pear tree. I said, man, look, it's growing crab apples. If this was a pear tree, he said, well, when I got it, it said pear tree on it. I said, somebody's messed with your mind. That's not a pear tree. That's a crab apple tree. He said, how do you know? I said, by the fruit that it's bearing. It's a crab apple tree. Now, there's no problem that all Christians believe that. I mean, they should. I don't, never actually met anybody that didn't. Now, there may be some various degrees of interpretation as to what kind of fruit to look for. But I know that faith that doesn't have works following right behind it, it's not a saving faith. We all know that. The idea is to say, let's see, I've got some faith, but I don't have quite enough works. So I need to fill up these works. If I can get some more works here, then I can come to God and I can say, God, see what my faith produced? It produced works. Or you look at your own works and you say, well, you know, I must not have faith. I don't have enough works. So you start trying to work so you can feel like you've got enough faith to be saved. That's a trap you'll never get out of. That's an endless spiral downward. The people that I give the gospel to, they don't think about works. The people that I give the gospel to in the prison, all those I told you about, I don't tell them, okay, now you need to start working. I tell them while they're drunk. I tell them while the guy's whoring, while he's got the cigarette in his hand. I tell him that he can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, I understand that if his heart is not repentant towards God, he's not going to be saved. If he doesn't long for righteousness, if he doesn't despise his sin, but if he comes to me brokenhearted saying, I, just, I, I remember a guy that, let me tell you this one, where my wife and I used to live when I first got married, Next door was a rental house that had some hippies living in it. 
These were just uh, dopehead hippies. And they were shacking up three of them together. Shacking up. I won't say anything more. You understand what I'm saying? It was, it was like two girls and a guy or two guys and a girl or something. Or, that's the way they, and it was like a whole house full of them. And so one day the door was open and I hear him partying. Now, I walked over there and I had a big old full black beard and hair. And I had on some old scuffy cut off blue jeans and had an old T-shirt that was dirty, full of sweat where I'd been working. Some tennis shoes, my toes sticking out. I looked just like one of them. So I walked over and I walked in the house and said, how you guys doing? The man said, yeah, have, have a joint. I said, no, I got something better than that. He said, that's cool. That's cool. Now, he didn't know what that better was. He thought I had, you know, I was taking some kind of substance that's better than that. And so he said, sit down there, man. I sat down. He said, tell me what you think. And he goes on. He starts talking and he's, he's expounding on something. The girls are all listening, you know, and the other guys, stuff going on in the house. Big old sin hole. And I sat there and listened to him for 20 minutes. I sat and listened to him carry on about something. I didn't know what, some philosophy, something. He said, what do you think? I said, well, I've listened to you for 20 minutes. Let me tell you what I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And so I told him the love story of Jesus. I never mentioned being lost. I never mentioned getting saved. I never mentioned believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as something they need to do. I just told him how God created us. How we fell into sin, how Jesus came to earth to die, to take away our sin, how he gives eternal life to all that come to him, how he puts his spirit inside and makes us holy and takes away the life of ugliness and selfishness and makes us brand new holy people. He said, wow, whoa, that's cool. I never heard that before in my life. One of the girls said, yeah, man, that's some kind of story. And I walked out knowing I hadn't done any good, but it felt good just to go there and give it to them. Next day, one of the girls out dumping trash and I was in the yard. I walked over and she said, you messed us up. I said, how did I mess you up? She said, we didn't sleep together last night. I said, why not? That story you told us. What about it? She said, That was a wonderful story. I took those three kids. They were 19, 20 years old. I took them with me to a gospel meeting the next night. And, you know, two of them had been born again that that evening when I talked to them. Two of them had believed that gospel that I gave them. They didn't even know what the implications were for them personally. But they were born again. One of them went on to be a missionary. I didn't have much more contact with them. They shipped out somewhere else. And we heard from them later. Now, one of them went on and became a full-fledged lesbian. And she came back to her house about 15 years later with her whatever. And, uh, and we, we greeted them and sent them on their way. But two of them were born again that night, just standing there giving them the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the works followed the faith. They weren't trying to make the works follow in order to prove something. They weren't seeking to work so that they could fill up their faith and make it whole and complete. And they hadn't even made a claim to faith. But the faith was producing works with no claim even being made. And I've seen that over and over again. I remember one night we were standing on the street preaching. There was a theater 
showing a movie that was X-rated, immoral, godless stuff on the screen. So 40 of us formed a line beside this line going into the theater. And we said to them, you're in the line to hell, we're in the line to heaven. Get out of your line, get in our line. That's pretty simple. (laughs) And so some old stringy-haired gal standing there in the line looked over and saw in our line a guy she'd been doing drugs with two weeks earlier. But we were at the Mid-South Fair and he got born again there. So he was now with us giving the gospel out. She looked at him and said, what are you doing in the line to heaven? And he said, come here, I'll tell you. So she walked over and he told her about how he'd been born again. Two or three of us talked to her that night. And that girl was saved, standing on the side of that street, born again. She went home. And when she walked in the door, they told it later. Her husband said, what happened to you? And she said, I met a man. He said, I knew it was going to happen sooner or later. Said, I met a man that forgave me of all my sins. His name is Jesus and took them all away. You know, within a couple of months, 20 people in that family had been saved. The husband, the grandmother, the mother, the sister, a cousin. All they came and filled the church up. Whole crowd of them got born again. Now, I've followed those people. I've seen that girl. From time to time, down through the years, that's been um, 45 years. She's had children, her children have grown up and have children. I've seen God got in that family and stayed there. And works followed. And those works told me they were saved. Now, I'll be honest with you. If you were to come up to me after this meeting and you say, well, I, I trusted Jesus the day I got saved. I'll say amen. I'm glad of that. But I won't believe you yet. I won't. <laughs> I won't believe you. I, I hope it's true, but I won't believe you. I'll believe you when, if two years from now I come back and you say, at that point I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and my life has been different. He's made a new man out of me, a new husband, a new father, and, and I'm sharing the gospel. I'll say to my wife, hey, two years ago that guy got saved at the meeting. I look for works too. But if you're wanting to get saved, you shouldn't look for works. If you're wanting to get saved, the only works you should look at are the works Jesus did. You look at yours and you'll shut yourself out. You look at the works he did and trust in his righteousness and you get in. And the works will follow. Now you say, but how do I know how, how much works? Let me tell you, if I were to just sit down and count my works up and compare them to my righteousness, I would think I wasn't saved. If I were to sit down and look to see how good a man I am. How holy. Again, I'm telling you, there's no no secret sins in my life. I've been married to one woman. I was a virgin when I got married. She was a virgin. I've been married to one woman my whole life. I've got five righteous kids. I've got righteous grandkids. I don't do any secret sins at all of any kind. And people who know me know me. I don't get angry. I don't blow up. I don't, uh, uh, I'm not greedy. I uh, live off of $15 an hour. From uh, my no greater joy salary, the money that I receive here will go back to no greater joy to missions. I don't have a fancy house. I don't covet. I don't build a lot of things up. It's the best shirt I've got the two I've worn here. I only got two pair of nice dress pants. And I got one pair of dress shoes, and that's it. I got some work boots, and that's it. I got an old, my vehicles are old. And uh, I'm just an ordinary, plain, simple 
person that knows I'd go to hell without Jesus Christ. Knows that I, all that outwardness, everything I've done, all the books I've written, all the people that life has it's nothing when I stand before God all alone. It's just me and him. And what I got won't get me in. What I've done wouldn't prove I'm saved. That might prove it to you, but it wouldn't prove it to me because I know me better than you do. And you can look at my works and my fruit and you can say, well, I believe he's a Christian. I can look at your works and fruit and I can say, I believe you're a Christian. But in the end, it doesn't matter what I believe about you. And it doesn't matter what you believe about me. It's what God knows about us. And he only knows through Jesus Christ. He goes on in, in the book of James. He goes on and says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. And it is. Yeah, man may say, that's a, a profession again. That's faith I have works. Show me thy faith that thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there's one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, you know, I believe more than that there's one God, and it doesn't make me tremble. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? That's true. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Of course he was. He didn't get just before God, but he justified his claim of believing God, which he'd... See, Abraham had already believed God and already had righteousness imputed to him before he offered up Isaac. But when he offered up Isaac, look what look how the passage reads. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So, Abraham, before he exercised the faith to have a child, before he exercised the faith to offer up Isaac, Abraham had believed God. And God calls Abraham righteous. But when Abraham obeys to that point, bears that fruit of obedience in offering up Isaac, he fulfills that statement that Abraham is a righteous man. He justifies himself by letting his faith follow through in works. Abraham didn't get saved because he offered up Isaac. He didn't get saved because he had a child. He got saved because he believed God. He believed God when there was no reason to believe God. He believed God when there was no evidence to believe God. He believed God when it was not obvious that a miracle would take place. He believed God when it was very possible for anything to happen other than a miracle. He believed God. And it's the faith that God saw that imputed righteousness to Abraham. That's quite clear in all the passages. Verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Notice, the faith is dead. He doesn't say that you become dead if you don't add works to your faith. He said what you call faith, what you say is faith, is actually dead. It's not a living reality. It's just something you conjured up in your mind. If it's real faith, it results in real works. And we all believe that. Now, I'll finish with this. Years ago, when we, 25, 26 years ago, when we moved into the community where we are, a bunch of Amish Mennonite there, horse and buggy people, more strict than most of you. Some of them wouldn't even, uh, <laughs> wouldn't wear eyeglasses because they didn't want anything manufactured by, uh, the, by the English they wouldn't uh, have rubber on their buggy tires. Some of them wouldn't have tops on their buggies. 
Uh, they didn't have even solar power. They wouldn't use chainsaws. They wouldn't use anything that had an electric motor on it or a gasoline engine at all. They just lived strictly off the land, kind of like they did in the 1500s or something. They'd have machetes and shovels, but that's about it. And these people were working their way to heaven. And when I talked with them, they said, you're getting saved by works. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not. You're getting saved by works. No, I'm not. You're getting saved by works. It just didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't understand them. And so they came over to my house, the three elders in the church, and we sat down and I took them through the book of Romans here on imputed righteousness, you know. And they would agree with that, but then they'd go back to the book of James and they'd say, faith without works is dead. You've got to have works. And when they say, we look at you, we don't see the works because you're driving a, a van. By the way, are you going to take us to the auction this weekend? Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, one day I was riding along with a whole van load of them crossing the Tennessee River, and there was a skier out there, and one of the women looked out and said, Look, look, there's a guy chasing the boat. <laughs> Never seen a skier before. Thought the guy was chasing the boat at 35 miles an hour. I don't know what they do in school. I mean, you know, that's you don't run that fast on the water. But it's kind of far off and you couldn't see. And... The guy sitting beside me starts lecturing me on the evils of an automobile while he's riding along with me. And so I couldn't understand him. And so it went on about eight or ten years like that. And one day I was in my shop working. And one of the leaders there in the church came in. Paul Miller by name. He came in and he starts talking to me about dying to yourself and being broken and being empty and being a, a contrite of hearts and so forth. And. He felt like I was a bit too proud and too happy and too cheerful and too confident. And uh, he didn't know he was saved, he said, because he'd be proud to say you're saved. How could he say he's saved? I mean, he said, I don't know how I'll live the rest of my life. So he's basing his salvation on how he might live. He said, I don't know what will happen. So how can I say I'm saved? Felt like he'd be proud. And so he said, you have to be broken and contrite. I said, look, if that's true, what, what's Jesus got to do with it? He said, well, the Jesus is the brokenness. He is the contrary heart. So I wrote that down on the wall with my paintbrush. Jesus, Jesus is brokenness and contrite heart and so forth. And so he left and I had some more conversations with him. Finally, one day it dawned on me. I said, you know what? What you guys do? I said, you got this box, this trunk. And you take it and you take out of it pride. At least you try to. You take out of it hasty spirit. You take out of it all the things that you feel like are offensive to God. And then you, you clean that thing out and you come to God and you say, God, here I am. And I come empty with nothing to offer. And you set your box and you open it and show him there's nothing in it. So I come with nothing. I come offering you nothing. I come just place myself upon your mercy and upon your grace. And God says, depart from me. You're unacceptable. So you get your box and you leave sad and broken hearted. You go to the barn, you pray for three days and you plead with God. God, show me what it is in my heart, my life that's keeping me from you. Oh, oh, there's something I missed. I see right there. I, I've been too confident in myself, too hasty. So you clean that out of your box too. You come back to God with your empty box. You say here. And again, God looks in your box and says, no, I can't. I can't save you. You can't be mine. You're not worthy. And you go away again. Now. The problem there is that you're bringing an empty box. When I come, I told him, when I come to God, I don't bring an empty box. My box is full of all kinds of garbage. 
I leave that thing sitting right there on the table. And I come to God and I say, God, I'm not worthy to come. I'm a stinking, rotten, filthy sinner and there's nothing I can do. And I can't change myself or make myself better. And I'm proud for even coming to you. And i got a wicked spirit. And I just want you to come and do something to me I can't do for myself. I believe you died for me and take away my sins. Please save me, God. I'm helpless. And God borns me again, puts me in his family. And Amish come by and they lean over and look in my box and say, Boy, he, he'll never make it into heaven, will he? Meanwhile, I'm rejoicing in God's finished work. They come by and look in the next day and there's less in there, you know. I'm not taking it out. And they come by and they look, there's less in there. And pretty soon that box gets kind of cleaned out. And they say, well, uh, I still don't know. I don't believe it, you know. It, it couldn't possibly be because he's English. There's no way he could really be a Christian. And that, I'm not concerned about the box. I'm concerned about loving the Lord Jesus Christ and walking the whole thing. I don't care about the religion part of this thing. And as long as you're busy cleaning up that vessel, which is you, and bringing it to God to, to try to plead to show him, and going back to clean up some more, and get it empty and get it broken, and try to get him to fill it, you'll never be saved. When you quit bringing an offering, even when the offering is nothing, God doesn't want you nothing. He just wants you like you are. Come, we sing the song, just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. By the way, a number of those people in the community have gotten born again. They've gotten saved. And they're not making empty boxes anymore and bringing them to God. They're rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And uh, some of them have not. Some of them are just <laughs> just this uh, hard nose everywhere. So... It's up to you. You can keep on doing your religious thing. Trying to please God. Keep on trying to justify yourself with your works. Or you can let God justify you by faith. Without the deeds of the law. Finally, there's one verse in the book of Romans, chapter 11. And if by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What he's saying is, if salvation is by grace or the little works, then it's not by grace at all. It's by works. If it's by works with a little grace, then it's not by works at all. It's by grace. It can't be a mixture of the two. It's one or the other. And then finally, one verse in Romans, he said that salvation is for those who worketh not. But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. So I have a tape message called Two Steps to Heaven. Two steps to heaven. The first step is cease working. And the second step is start believing. As long as you're working, you'll never take the step of believing alone. Any mixture of works will keep you from believing the gospel. All right, I'm going to quit there. Listen, if you... Uh, If you have a computer, you can go online and you can get my Romans all the way through teaching free. And uh, on the online, you can also get Cane Creek Corner where you got video and stuff from us. And that I think comes out twice a week, doesn't it? Twice a week, fresh stuff online on the computer you can get. There are other messages online that are free. If you want to hear more on this subject, go to our website at nogreaterjoy.org. And look for the free download on the verse-by-verse teachings of the book of Romans. 
It is more than 10 hours of plain Bible teaching. You might also want to procure my messages, Two Steps to Heaven and Imputed Righteousness. You can also subscribe to our free bi-monthly magazine, No Greater Joy. You will also find many YouTube messages online. Write to us and tell us what you think. No Greater Joy, 1010 Pearl Road, Pleasantville, Tennessee, 37033.